Good morning and welcome everyone to this first panel of our Reinventing Destiny conference. I am delighted that we have been able to assemble such a talented and distinguished panel of speakers. We will be discussing for Singapore economic transition for the 21st century. Before I turn to the panelists, I want to continue the narrative of improbability and aversion to hubris that Director Janadas opened this conference with. The setting for our discussion on looking ahead is this. It is not only that Singapore has overcome sharp odds in going from being a small nation, 720 square kilometers in expense, so about the size of Lexington, Kentucky, or El Paso, Texas, a bit larger than Chicago, but smaller than New York City, a small nation with no natural resources, to today, enormous economic success by almost every measure. Our goal this morning is not just to celebrate that, but we want to look at ongoing change. And we want this conversation to be about peeking a little bit ahead into the future. Director Janadas warned us about not giving in to hubris. For one, when measured by per capita GDP, the world's richest countries are, with only one significant exception, uniformly small. Luxembourg, Ireland, Norway, Switzerland are all small nations, and they all have per capita incomes comparable to Singapore's. Of these, only Switzerland, with a population of 9 million, has more people than Singapore. Taken together, these four nations, comparable to Singapore, have an average population that comes in at under 5 million, compared to Singapore's 5.5. In this IMF tabulation that I am drawing on, is Qatar after Singapore, and only then the United States with 330 million people. For those who wonder about the success of small states, it might be that it's actually the United States that is anomalous for being a big country that is actually rich. Because most of the, big, most of the countries that are rich are actually small. The remarkable story that we begin the discussion with here this morning, therefore, is not of richness or wealth alone, but of dynamics and growth. Because nowhere else, as we look around the world at places that are comparable to Singapore in development, in wealth, in richness, nowhere else can we say that just six decades ago were any of these other places described as merely a malarial island, as Henry Kissinger repeated, or facing ever-rising ever problems of underemployment, 
poverty, and near destitution, as Anne Wee herself wrote. Sixty years ago, Singapore was Britain's main naval base in the Far East, where, with Britain reaching exhaustion as a great power, the planned closing of the British naval base here would, through arithmetic alone, reduce Singapore's GDP by 20%. That starting point is what we want to have in mind, at the same time that today, we recognize Singapore's per capita income, measured at market exchange rates, exceeds that of the United States. It is double that of the United Kingdom, France, or Germany. And it is this change that is remarkable, not just the success today. Only for Singapore can we say that since the 1970s, the bottom 50% of our population has seen more than a six-fold increase in average incomes. This dynamic, this positive growth, leads us to the question that I want to invite our panelists to address. What must Singapore do next to keep this ongoing economic change positive? I want my panelists to speak to what has struck them from where they sit about Singapore's economic journey. What do they reckon for the message and narrative that has worked for Singapore up until now? And going forwards, how do the panelists figure that narrative might need to change over the next 10 years? In a world that's going digital, green, geopolitically fraught, and domestically everywhere, with tensions tearing at the fabric of social cohesion. I want to turn to the first of my distinguished panelists, Professor Lawrence Summers, who is kindly joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts online. Professor Summers is Charles W. Elliott University Professor at Harvard, President Emeritus of Harvard University, and formerly Secretary of the Treasury of the United States. Larry, over to you, please. Thank you very much, Danny. It's an enormous privilege uh, to be with you. I have fond memories of times together when you were a graduate student uh, at Harvard. It's a great privilege, albeit virtually, to be with a distinguished audience in Singapore. And it's a special honor for me to have been invited to participate in a conference celebrating the 100th anniversary of Lee Kuan Yew's uh, birth. It was uh, my privilege as a young man and then as a middle-aged uh, man to get to know uh, Lee Kuan uh, Yew. I think any explanation of Singapore's success that neglects to point out that it had the good luck to have a man like Lee Kuan Yew rise to a position of high authority and capacity to set social direction makes a grave mistake. I have known people who are extremely smart in my life, we have many at Harvard. 
I have known people of extraordinary determination and personal force uh, in my life, particularly during my times of service in uh, the U.S. government. I have known people who have an absolute determination to always see the world as it is, rather than they would prefer it to be. I have known people who set extremely high standards for others, but those standards are only 80% as high as the standards they set for themselves. But I have known only one person who had all of those attributes and so many more. And any explanation of Singapore's success that does not give weight to the special factor that was Lee Kuan Yew makes a serious mistake. And any theory of a successful next century that assumes that it can always be Singapore's good luck to be governed and led by someone as extraordinary as Lee Kuan Yew is seriously wanted. I believe that Lee Kuan Yew set Singapore on a powerful uh, course by establishing the principle that it would always be both a commercial and a collegial nation, that it would be determined to produce what the world wanted, to draw on its skills to serve the world, because that's how it would be paid and uh, rewarded. And at the same time, that it would not seek to sit in judgment of others, but would rather seek to be a colleague to all, understanding, empathizing with the situations in which all others found themselves and trying where they could without sacrificing its own interest to be helpful to others. And it is that ability to be commercial and collegial that I believe has been central to Singapore's economic success and central to Singapore's geopolitical success. In 35 years of attending international meetings with officials from Singapore, I have never encountered an unprepared 
official from Singapore. I have never encountered an undiplomatic official from Singapore. And I have never encountered an official who was not seeking to be constructive with respect to the problem at issue. Now, I don't mean to suggest that the future is going to be what the past was. I think it is very unlikely that any country half as prosperous as Singapore is will grow as rapidly over the next 50 years as Singapore has grown over the last 50 years. The growth that comes from catching up is fundamentally easier than the draft that comes when you're at the very front of uh, the peloton. And that will be a challenge for Singapore. From the front, fitting into a mold is a less effective strategy than creating a new mold. And that means fostering creativity, fostering unfashionable ideas, fostering things that might work and might fail, but that will contribute much more if they succeed than they will cost if they will fail, will be that much more important. I believe that small countries need to turn their smallness into an advantage by being as open as possible to the movement of peoples and talent as they possibly can be. And so I have been extraordinarily impressed by the efforts of Singapore to bring in people from the outside to uh, the maximum extent uh, possible. I also believe that with smallness, with lack of physical size and lack of immense population comes a greater capacity for common social goals that in turn can produce unity and a sense of purpose. And I believe that one respect, and on this note, I will close, has always been part of Singapore's system, and I believe must always be. And that is an absolute and rigorous insistence on merit, on rigorous evaluation of contribution to uh, society and the allocation of influence based not on matters of friendship, 
not on matters of identity, not on matters of personality, but instead on the basis of the ability to contribute the most. And it is that aspect of Singaporean society that I hope and expect will be most enduring. And in a world that is going to be defined by ideas, that is going to be defined by both IQ and EQ, I believe that it is the success in cultivating extraordinary individuals and providing them with maximum opportunity that will be most important for Singapore. Thank you very much for the chance to be with you. Thank you, Larry, for that wonderful opening, reminding us of the things that matter and the things that are important in the challenges ahead. Thank you also for the reference to how I was a graduate student learning, sitting at your feet. My memory of that time is mostly of fear and awe <laughs> and the fierce intelligence that you as a young faculty member uh, were kind enough to share with us graduate students. Thank you for that time and thank you for your opening. I'd like to turn now to Jessica, if I may. Jessica Tan is Group Executive Director and Group Co-CEO at Ping An. She's regularly named by Forbes and Fortune magazines as among the world's most powerful women. Her work experience has come from both West and East and across a range of fields, ranging from engineering and computer science through economics, healthcare, insurance, and technology. Jessica, very keen to hear your insights on Singapore. Thank you, Danny. Um, so first off, a, a bit of introductions about myself, as Danny said. Um, so I'm a poster child, I think, of Singapore very successful policies right at the beginning. Um, I'm very proud to be Singaporean. I'm very proud to have been born in Singapore. My parents were born in Malacca. Uh, they were, went to Taiwan for their university education. My dad is a semiconductor engineer, uh, and my mom was uh, finance accounting, and then had the three of us here. Uh, very fortunate because I, my, I studied as a you know, immigrant, second-generation immigrant, uh, in a primary school that no longer exists. I, mean, I was fortunate enough to be enrolled in the neighborhood school there where I was the first batch of students, Kovumbaru Primary School. I could only find it on MOE Heritage site right now. Um, but despite that, um, I was able to benefit from a first-class education here in Singapore. Um, and rode into, well, um, the other side of Cambridge uh, in MIT, uh, and then joined McKinsey uh, for 13 years, and then Ping An now for 10 years. And um, as uh, Danny said, uh, for the past 20 years, I've been traveling uh, across Asia, so I worked across all of Asia, but my family's firmly here uh, in Singapore. So that's a bit of an introduction about myself. Um, um, thank you for inviting me here. Uh, as part of this, I did look back, uh, not just in terms of numbers, but as we grow up, you know, what really made us uh, Singapore great 
and what will continue to do that. I think it's a very fitting tribute. The two thoughts I wanted to, uh, I don't have the answers, but I, the two thoughts I wanted to leave everyone with as I went through this process. The first one that struck me as I look back was on the ambition and the courage that we had that made to create world-leading capabilities. Right. Um, my husband works at Changi Airport. He was preparing some sort of history. And I was looking through, um, I chanced upon a LKY speech to the NUS students in 1990. I think it's probably one of his last speeches when he was prime minister. And he spoke about um, you know, us being a seaport. Well, you can kind of think, yeah, we should be, right? I mean, that's how the British found us. But us as an airport, like air hub, that was, that's man-made. And he talked about, in 1981, I'm sure some of the folks here were part of this uh, effort, how you know, he and the team decided to basically write off 800 million you know, of Pyre Labor Airport. Oh, yeah. um, at that time, I, I imagine it's huge money. Invested one to two billion Sing dollar to build Singapore Changi Airport. Right. Uh, at that time, Pyle Labour was only three million passenger arrivals. Um, you know, they were then building, you know, four times that off. You know, uh, you know, there was I think it was eight times. I think it was thirty million, and then now Singapore Airport, uh, Changi Airport is seventy million. You know, and then building I think T five to like hundred over a million. That kind of ambition to be world class. I mean, I travel maybe more than a thousand flights in my life, there's no doubt in my view that you know, Singapore is one of the best airport in the world, period. Um, and I think that has made us great and that has put us on the map. But going forward, we do have a structural disadvantage. Uh, in my past 10 years working in China, I grew up believing that um, it's okay we're small, but we'll be nimble. Uh, you know, that's what we always tell ourselves. And I, I truly believed in that. My past 10 years working in China, and particularly in the past few years with digital innovations and such, um, I realized scale is important. In the time that we do one pilot, China could do 200 pilots in 200 cities. And particularly in digital world, it matters, There's, which is why there's no doubt it's always about US and China. Nobody else talk about anybody. Um, you know, just to give a few examples in, you know, in tech, um, in healthcare, in education, why I think it matters. Uh, in tech, I mean, everyone knows AI, right? The more it's about computing power, it's about data, it's about the scenarios. I'll give an example of a, a simple application we do. I mean, we, we are one of the largest car insurers. Uh, only, I only have about 20% market share. We built, uh, since 2017, a car app that if you get into an accident, just take pictures with your phone. I get into accident very often. Um, you know, and we'll automatically educate. Um, we're able to do that because we process 14.6 million car claims a year. Uh, and we did two years of data to build that, and we've been using it twin since 2017. I looked up a bit our car stats I only manage the pre-COVID numbers. In Singapore, we only have 160,000 accidents in all of Singapore in one year. It would take us 90 years to accumulate the same amount of data to build such a model. Now, it, may be, it may sound simple. Yeah. I, I give healthcare. 
We talk about healthcare, and obviously, these days is about preventive health. Right? You, are, you don't want to get sick, particularly chronic disease. We talk about diabetes, which is a problem that we constantly have. Um, we built a, um, we do healthcare business in, in China. There's 100 million health uh, diabetes patients in China. Um, we use 2.8 million, which are our own customers, to build a prediction model because the problem with diabetes is out of control and you get into seven different types of complications which makes your health and healthcare costs goes a lot. Um, with 2.8 million data, data, we built a prediction model. We were able to improve. We now serve our millions of customers on that. They go through these camps uh, to do it well. Um, now, it, we only have, I think, thankfully, not many. I think we have 40,000 or so diabetes patients uh, in Singapore. It would take us very long to do that. Um, so we actually use, um, we collaborate with uh, SGXGH. It turns out the models, we don't transport data, the models are 80% accurate. Right? We needed a little bit more to tweak um, you know, the different ethnic groups and stuff. Um, so in healthcare, as you talked about going forward, not just administering healthcare services, but being more preventive and stuff and you know, being prescriptive, uh, you know, skill does matter. And then I want to leave one more, which is around education. Right. And I think COVID has changed what we define as global versus local services. Right. It used to be goods are global. Right. So e-commerce, et cetera, you would expect that. But then, you know, during COVID, my girl was learning coding from Chinese, from my Chinese company, we you know, hire them coding. She learns piano remotely. I've learned in Korea now for one year from a teacher in Seoul. So even even services, even education, something as local as that can be done on a global scale. And unfortunately, I had to close down on my online education company in China because of policy changes. Um, uh, but just before we closed down, I was going to launch Chinese tuition here in, China, in Singapore. I'm very sure I would have wiped out probably all the tuition centers that we send our kids and grandkids uh, to because what better way to learn Chinese from Chinese and you know, in a fun way uh, remotely from in China. So I think on this point, I wanted to say that uh, a thought that we should not be hampered by we are small scale. Uh, I think nimble is important, but not sufficient. I think particularly in the next 20, 30 years, scale does matter. We should constantly force ourselves to find where we can create world-class capabilities and scale. And I quote the same thing from what LKY said in his uh, NUS speech. He's a wonderful speaker. Um, you know, he, he looked at the NUS student and he said, it takes, um, you know, people with, and he pointed to his head, uh, vision and imagination, you know, coupled with the powers of analytics, right, to find these niches. Um, and, and I think this is one thought I wanted to leave that uh, with. Uh, the second thought I wanted to leave with um, is around, and I'm running out of time very rapidly, some people. Um, it will not be possible without good people supported by housing, education, healthcare. Myself being the prime example. Um, and I, you know, we have to think about how we do that continuously. I know there was a bit of a setback and worry, but I think you know, with the right kind of view and stuff, we need to continue growing. And because our own birth rates is appalling, I tell my two girls, you have to at least have 2.1 <laughs> kids to replace the population. Uh, but, but nonetheless, that is a problem that we have to face with. So we have to have non-resident labor and how do you assimilate them? Uh, I think that would be a key thing. 
And then finally, uh, to 30 seconds, I, I want to end off with something that uh, I found in one of LKI's speeches. I don't know who wrote his speeches, it's just wonderful. Um, we, I love the reinventing destiny theme. Right. Uh, we are sitting here also in MBS, which I thought was very fitting, because he was dead against gambling. I looked at the stats, because um, growing up in the 80s and 90s, we talked about the Si Xiaolong, the four Asian tigers. And I looked at every, every 10 years. Uh, in 1995, 2005, us and Hong Kong was about the same. We're about 20, 25,000 GDP capita. Right, uh, you talked about us being very rich. Uh, Taiwan and Seoul, uh, Korea was about 12, 13,000. In 2022, we've far exceeded, far exceeded. We're 82,000 GDP capita, as uh, Aliyah said, uh, we are, I think, second to Qatar, is it? Um, and then Hong Kong is only 49,000, and then Taiwan and Korea is 30,000. As I'm sure here, there are many people who tell me my stats are you know, not apple to apple. I didn't have time to do Seoul versus Taipei and stuff. Uh, you know, people will also tell me Hong Kong, there are other circumstances. But I want, to, I want to believe it's not just because other cities have other circumstances. We actually did something different. And I found, um, you know, I think uh, in 2005, LKY said in parliament, and, and you know, I was very touched, when I read this, he said, Dear Speaker, I am anti-gambling. As a child in primary school, I saw my father became, become a problem gambler for several years. So as all of you know, he you know, was dead against gambling. And then, you know, it's amazing how he predicted everything. Um, the old model on which I worked on was to create a first world city, clean, green, efficient, etc. The integrated resort where, you know, I think two of which we are, one of which we are in right now, is a small part in this remaking of Singapore. You know, we have to be top class, uh, economically vibrant, exciting cities with top class symphony orchestras, etc. And he also predicted, by the way, Shanghai in 30 years, which is 2035, Shanghai will probably be the most international city of Asia. But we can become a gem of an island with a vibrant economy for six to seven million people by 2030. Right, so I think you know, this is why not only we are here, but Taylor Swift has decided to have you know, only stop in here with six nights. Jackie Chung here for 11 nights. I caught a glimpse of him on the flight back to Hong Kong. Uh, and we have you know, Coldplay, you know, we have, I was in BTS concert. I think we, I want to believe that even in the past 17 years, our success was also reinventing our first 40 odd years of you know, industrialization. And I believe we have to continue reinventing ourselves forward. So I think it's, uh, you know, I, I applaud the organizers for 100 year birth anniversary, uh, you know, besides congratulating ourselves. And I hope we'll continue to make this not just world-class capabilities, but also a great place for good people to want to settle down. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Um, I'm going to turn to our next speaker, Ian Golden, in a second. But I also wanted to just very quickly remark on how our first two speakers have already given us so much to think about. As we carry on with this panel, I hope that you will all be engaged in the conversation that will come after these opening statements. Uh, both Larry and Jessica have referred to uh, two things in common, 
and many more, but two things I just want to flag for now. The importance, the consequentiality of the vision that Lee Kuan Yew had, his energy and his intelligence. Second, the um, size of Singapore. Larry talked about how size, Singapore's small size was something that could be used to turn to an advantage. That, that advantage was manifest in an openness to talent and ideas from everywhere else. Jessica has warned us that small size might be something that we do need to take seriously in a world of big data, where analytic decision-making requires ever more uh, experiences and events that large countries have greater access to. And that's something, it's a tension that we're gonna see manifest uh, through time. The next speaker, Ian Golden, is at Oxford University's Oxford Martin School, Professor of Globalization and Development, and Director for the Future of Work, Technological and Economic Change, and the Future of Development. All of these issues we have just been discussing. Ian, grateful for your thoughts. Thank you very much, uh, Danny. It's a huge honor and privilege to be here and invited to say something in honor of the 100th anniversary of Lee Kong Yu's birth. Uh, sitting in this marvelous conference center, thinking about over the road a swimming pool 650 meters suspended in the sky, which to me is emblematic of reinventing destiny. How one can take this tropical swamp uh, infested with malaria and create this iconic place, which now is the symbol in the world of defying gravity of what some, including colleagues of Larry and mine, thought was impossible in tropical places, uh, this growth uh, that is simply the envy of the world for good reason. Not only did many doubt it, but the pace of this growth, nine over 9% for the first 25 years, uh, over 7% over its entire period of independence is beyond what anyone could have imagined. And it withstood great challenges. It withstood the Asian crisis of 98, the SARS epidemic of 2003, uh, the global financial crisis of 2008, and of course, the pandemic of recent years. In addition to focusing on the factors that Larry and Jessica have pointed to of leadership and the depth and importance of that, let me highlight a couple of others that I believe help explain this absolutely exceptional performance. The smallness and openness to the world has been alluded to, but not all small states are open to the world. This was a policy choice. There are many small states, perhaps the extreme example, North Korea, which have decided to go the opposite way, and they are stuck in the past. Smallness in itself does not invite openness. It often invites defensiveness, and that has been a more prevalent history around the world. It's the conscious choice of the founding leaders to do this and to recognize that with openness comes risk. Risk from competition because others inevitably are further ahead than you and pose a real threat to your ability to survive. 
risk that comes from being open to the forces that drive the world. As the world entered the period of globalization, the butterfly defect of globalization, the instability that comes with globalization, prevalent through the spread of financial crises, through pandemics and through others, becomes a bigger and bigger risk to a small open economy. Smallest means risk. Smallest means buffeted by the winds of change of the world. And it's been Singapore's ability to manage this openness, conscious of this, resilience in the face of it, which I think really makes it stand out from everyone else. The fact that in the Prime Minister's office there's a group focused on futures and a group focused on risk, and indeed in most of the ministries the same. And I had a personal experience of this when I left uh, being head of policy at the World Bank Group and started the Oxford Martin School, big interdisciplinary group focused on the future in Oxford. Amongst the first delegations to visit was a delegation of senior civil servants from Singapore. I found this remarkable because from down the road in Downing Street, no one visited. And to me, this again is symptomatic of the fact of why Singapore, which keeps through this curiosity and interest in the future and risk, keeps reinventing itself, whereas other places have hubris, other places are stuck in the past. The curiosity and the curiosity which is built on an understanding of the benefits of diversity. Diversity at home, through the population and drawing as many people in, but diversity in the world and the ability to draw on big practice. The importance of ethics, the importance of public service of a meritocracy is also absolutely central to this. There are other small places which have not been so fortunate. Looking forward, where does this lead us? I believe that today is the slowest day we'll know for the rest of our lives. If we think we've had a rough ride, if we think it's been a roller coaster, we need to fasten our seatbelts even tighter. And that's because there are more people more connected in the world with more ideas, more technologies and dimensions of technology, and because the butterfly defect of globalization is becoming much more virulent, turbulent, through this connectivity. The pace of change is also accelerating because there are more brains connected. There's more genius out there, collective and individual, good and bad. And that means we should expect much more change. It's the curiosity and the search for learning, the understanding that if we stay as we are, we are rapidly falling behind. That is absolutely central to embracing the future. Talk of globalization's death are much exaggerated, but it is radically transforming. I feel in a way that suits Singapore, and that's for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's becoming much more Asian, and the flows within this region are in fact accelerating. If you look at the financial flows, if you look at the trade flows, the service flows, etc., this region is where it's at. 
The North Atlantic is deglobalizing, but not this part of the world. And that is good news. And of course, given the population numbers and the growth numbers, we can ex expect acceleration. The second thing that's in Singapore's favor going forward is the world is moving from manufacturing to massages and services at an accelerated rate, bringing home through robotics, additive manufacturing, artificial intelligence, services that used to be globalized, which Singapore has no comparative advantage in. The demise of call centers turning into chat boxes is not bad for Singapore. It's terrible for the Philippines. It's terrible for many other places. The demise of big manufacturing centers of garments, of auto, of other manufacturing is not bad for Singapore. It's bad for other developing countries and emerging markets and catastrophic for Africa, which is 100 million people coming onto the workforce over the next 10 years. Playing into Singapore's strength as the knowledge hub, as a city which is dynamic, and this is one of the reasons why cities outpace others, because they don't have to subsidize a hinterland. Cities are always, and dynamic cities are always, more productive than the hinterland. That's, and especially as we move to a knowledge economy. Artificial intelligence will accelerate this, and I'm more optimistic than you about Singapore's ability to play in this race, because I don't think you need the big data at home. You need the model link capacity and access to it. And anyway, we're moving to a world where big data will be generated by machines. So I'm more optimistic about that. But I am pessimistic about the productivity paradox. There is no evidence from anywhere in the world that this AI revolution is leading to the productivity improvements that Singapore desperately needs and the world needs because of rapid aging of the population. Particularly, Asian countries need, Europe needs, and the US needs. Less Africa because of different demographic dynamics. How we move to a world of artificially generative AI, which allows Singapore to leverage its strength, I believe, is absolutely key. Other key challenges, of course, are well known. Climate change, I believe, poses an almost existential risk for small island states, very, very low altitude above the ocean, subject to tornadoes and storms and big surges and weather extremes. This is going to pose a massive infrastructure and other challenge for Singapore. I believe we are past the world of 1.5%, maybe past 2%, and with that, a greater and greater extreme. So this is a massive issue, as if, of course, is the geopolitics. An escalation of tensions in the South China Sea would be catastrophic for the region and the world. Singapore wisdom in being friend to the world is being challenged, and it cannot be for Singapore, I believe, to navigate effectively. It is a small society which is a big advantage that doesn't pose a threat to anyone. It is able to do that out of its smallness, be friend to everyone, not a foe. But a war, an escalation of a cold war between the US and China would pose massive challenges and slow down the world economy.
So this is a wonderful opportunity on the slowest day we know for the rest of our lives to take our breaths, to reflect, and to re-energize ourselves with the curiosity, with this embrace of openness and ideas, with this commitment to meritocracy, and, of course, in celebration of this marvelous country, which has been the hallmark, I think, of its development. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Piyush, you are next. Piyush Gupta is Group CEO, DBS Bank Limited. But much more than that, he is also a fixture in Singapore's conversations about practically, on practically every dimension, economics, politics, culture. Among many other contributions, Piyush serves on Singapore's Emerging Stronger Task Force that worked on defining Singapore's future post-COVID. Piyush, your thoughts, please. All right, thank you. Thank you, Danny. And again, I'm uh, really pleased to be here as well. Um, I'm going to spend a minute, maybe my perspective on what made Singapore great is actually mirrors a lot of the comments, so I won't spend too, too much time on that. But number one, I'm a big believer in the idea that the trend is your friend, and I think we nailed the globalization trend at the right time. Um, you know, Janadas quoted uh, Raja Ratnam uh, um, uh, on a couple of occasions. I was struck by something he said in 1972, uh, which was that Singapore will grow and prosper in a global, as long as the global system grows and prospers. Uh, but Singapore will collapse if the global system collapses. Um, I think the global system has been growing and prospering, and I am in the same camp as you, Ian. I don't see the end of this global system. I'm going to come back to that. The second thing which I think really, uh, again, we've talked about is um, off the charts um, leadership. Uh, blessed with um, Lee Kuan Yew, not just ambition and courage, but a genius in social engineering. Um, Go Kem Sui and what he was able to create from an economic and financial standpoint off the charts. So a gifted first generation of leadership, but what is underrated, a deliberate attempt to be public sector driven. Uh, most of Singapore's success came from an extraordinary public sector and, you know, all the issues about um, ministers and, and, and perm sex and so on. But the reality is that we're a public sector-driven country. And there's been a big driver of Singapore's growth in this period of time. So extraordinary leadership, but strong government and strong public sector. Um, uh, as we look to the future, I really have three broad uh, comments to make. One is what I think we should double down on. Second is, what are the new trends that I think we should really try to embrace? And third, a reflection and a comment on how we need to work. Um, and these are sort of anchored back to what made us successful. Some of those things I think are still um, uh, extant. So the first one, what do we need to double down on? Uh, I think we need to double down on globalization. I think the basic notion that Singapore's success uh, is intricately linked to the success of a global economy, a global marketplace, and a global flow of ideas is as true today as it was 60 years ago. I'm less uh, concerned, I'm more sanguine than many other people about the future of this global system. First, I don't see an iron curtain falling between the East and the West. I don't see a Cold War emerging. Uh, and for one simple reason, China is too big and too intricately linked into global economics. Russia and the Russian bloc was 5% of global GDP. It didn't matter that much. You could ring fence it. You can't ring fence China. 
is the largest trading partner for 68 countries in the world, is the largest trading partner for eight of the uh, ASEAN countries. And guess what? Even in the last five years, with Trump, with Biden, with challenges uh, politically uh, with India, you look at the trade data. The trade data is only going one way. The trade in goods, forget services, even trade in goods. In the China-US data moves up and down. If you look at China-ASEAN flows, and then you look at ASEAN-US flows, you can see exactly what's happening. It is very hard to decouple China. It will happen in some areas. It might happen in high-end semiconductors. It might happen in portions of technology. But structurally and fundamentally, not that easy to create an iron curtain. So I think the flow uh, will continue to, to, to exist. We see, uh, we hear a lot of talk about nearshoring and you know, people moving away. What I'm seeing from my clients in business is by and large, people are moving from China, not moving from China, sorry, adding to China, China plus one. But the plus one is in Thailand for auto, it's in Penang for electronics, it's in Indonesia, it's in India, it is in the region. Uh, some investments go to Mexico and Canada, but at the margin. Why is that? Because of what Ian said. The demographics are here, the markets are here. Even if you want to keep your supply chain short, you will base a supply chain in the region where the markets are. And therefore, this notion that you know, things are completely splintering is not really happening uh, at scale. Even if you wind up with tensions in the world, which I think you will, I think you will wind up with a multipolar world, not a bipolar world. You'll sort of be like Europe in the 19th century. And you can see countries with heft, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, India, will be able to play multiple sides. There'll be issues based, and they will uh, follow path based issues. Now, that's a challenge for a small country, small state. We are price takers, which is why we need to make sure we anchor our wagon to other uh, countries and regions that give us some heft. Therefore, I think Southeast Asia and ASEAN will be singularly important. And I think trying to guide the ASEAN model towards more collective uh, engagement uh, is something that we should continue to drive. The biggest countries that matter to us outside of the China-America, we should double down on India, we should double down on Indonesia. India will be a force to play. We have some natural uh, uh, connectivity. We don't leverage it enough because as a nation, we don't know how to deal with India. We have to learn. And we have to double down on Indonesia. We do know how to deal with Indonesia better, but we've had stop-start arenas. So that's a large picture thing, but double down on globalization with these nuances. Second comment. So what are the new trends we should embrace? The two which are obvious. One is the world is digitizing. Today, 14, 15% of global GDP is consumed online. This will get up to 23, 25% over the next seven, eight years. Uh, now, that could be a challenge, but it can be an opportunity. So, Jessica, you sort of went there. I do think you can build a world-scale business today from a garage. That plays to Singapore's strength. Whether it's healthcare services, whether it's education services, whether it's financial services, the world's your oyster. You can actually expand and take a GNP prism, not an inbound GDP prism. So, I think that's helpful. But I do think we have another opportunity on top of the market opportunity. And that opportunity comes from playing a role to develop what I call the highways of the internet world, to focus on the infrastructure of the new digital economy, and focus on something which I think will be crucial, defining the norms of how we operate uh, in a new digital world, the marriage between the hard sciences and the soft sciences, between technology and philosophy, between trying to figure what is AI appropriate for, what should you use data for, how do you establish a way of working that is acceptable to our future generations? I think this is a, a singular blend
between philosophy, social sciences, and the hard sciences. And Singapore, because of our city-state ability to work as a single state, we're a living lab. We can define many of these things as we go forward. Uh, I am in your camp, and I don't think absence of data, not having the reams of data that China does will be a handicap. I think data will be self-generated, AI models will generate data. I think the value will come from creating the data hubs. The trade hub which we are creating in Singapore, a digital hub for information we are creating in Singapore, a financial center healthcare hub. If you can create data hubs, and if you can create the trust, and Singapore is known for trust, if you can leverage our trusted position to be able to be the interlocutor or the manager of this data, I think we can uh, build on that trend. The other big trend is sustainability. So Ian's comments are right. I think it's going to be a big challenge. And small countries, especially in this part of the world, low-lying, Sunda seas is low, we run serious risks. But we also have serious opportunities. There are no clear winners today in thinking about how do you shape the future of the world in a world where climate is a problem, biodiversity is a problem. Many of the solutions lie in our region. Some of the best solutions are nature-based solutions. Some of the best answers are in Indochina, in Indonesia, in the region. Many of the biggest challenges are again challenges around trust. The carbon markets, which I think are a really intelligent way to, to move resources from the north to the south. I, I think those carbon markets can exist, but they haven't worked since the Kyoto Protocol. And the reason they haven't is they're opaque. Nobody trusts them. Nobody believes that there's incremental, in, incrementality in the solutions that are proffered. Well, Singapore can again create the, the answer for that. It's an emerging stronger task force. We really focus very hard on these two trends. How can we leverage the digitization of the world? And how can we create a sustainability ecosystem in Singapore built on trust, verification, authentication, carbon markets, et cetera, et cetera. I think both of these trends are important. Uh, my last comments and how we manage. I do think that while strong leadership is always necessary and critical to Singapore's success, I also believe that the way the world is going is you have to start reimagining how to manage uh, for a world where information is no longer at a premium. You can Google everything. Young people want to make a different kind of impact. And technology lets you manage in a very different way. In tech companies, and now increasingly in the corporate sector, uh, there's a concept called agile at scale, which is bringing people together uh, in small groups uh, and being able to drive ideation, creativity, and growth bottoms up and not tops down. I think there's a real opportunity for Singapore. Again, I go back to what I said, we are a living lab. We can bring all three, the public sector, the private sector, and the people sector, together in ways that large countries find very hard to do. Leveraging the power of technology and the small size we have, uh, this is how I define nimbleness, our ability to actually solution differently, to be able to work together, I think it can be a, a winning strategy. I believe in the future, because of this accelerating pace of change Ian talked about, it's going to be very hard to call exactly what's coming down the pike. The answer will be in being adaptable. Resilient, adaptable, and nimble. And to be nimble, adaptable, and resilient, how you work will be far more important than what you do. So if we can build the resiliency in our system for people to come together, to be able to work collectively, I think we can continue to outcompete. Alliances for Action, which is something that was, you know, came together a few years ago, I think it's a good start. You bring people together. At the Emerging Stronger Task Force, where we first came up with this, we, got, we tried to bring people from the public sector, private sector, etc. And many people commented on the fact that the first time we've been able to think whole of nation, not just whole of government. If we can uh, endure and build a whole of nation strategy using our size, 
uh, could be an advantage and not a disadvantage. Uh, so I'm still, I, I'm optimistic. I think we will be buffeted by the winds of change. We will be buffeted by the small state problems. We will be pushed to take sides. But in many ways, I see the glass half full. I really think that our size, nimbleness, and adaptability will allow us to play in a new world uh, in a very winning kind of way. Thank you very much. Piyush, thank you very much for that vision. Uh, we've got a wealth of ideas from our four panelists. Um, it's wonderful to try and work through. Just to begin the conversation, for myself, I picked up a number of themes that all four speakers touched on. The first is the consequentiality of globalization. It is not dying, it is changing. And it's changing in potentially unexpected ways. A place like Singapore that has benefited so much from the traditional model of globalization needs to be looking ahead to what these new global changes will be. The old model of globalization was one where everything made everywhere became available to anyone anywhere. And that allowed Singapore and other small states to ruthlessly decouple the size of their economic market from their physical size. That was hugely important in the early part of Singapore's history. That globalization might be unexpected shows up also in a, in a nuance in how we think about where big data will be generated. With data linkages, with machines actually being the things that generate data, not just people, with software bots being the things that produce new information that we can then build AI on top of, that removes the constraints of physical size. But there are certain things that, as uh, Jessica reminded us, will still matter in terms of uh, the diminutive population. The second theme that I picked up was the importance of meritocracy, the idea of rewarding, recognizing, evaluating those who make contributions to society, whether it's through entrepreneurial activity or through public service. All of these things are hugely important. And the third message I took was how we need to be bold. We need to be a living laboratory whether it's through what Larry Summers described as our being open to technology, ideas, talents from everywhere, whether we look at the things that are going on around us and think about what the next step, the next iteration should be. Singapore needs to be bold. It needs to be a living laboratory. I would like now to pick up questions from the floor. Those of you who are physically would like to come up and ask a question, there are mics around the place. Um, perhaps I can begin with Simon. Thank you, Danny. Simon Tse. Please um, identify yourself and say your organization. I will. Uh, I'm Simon Tse, the chairman of the Singapore Institute of National Affairs and the NUS law professor. Uh, Danny, I, I think you summarized it very well how much the panel has given us, so I won't repeat. The question I have to ask is many of the things that suggested innovation, boldness, uh, are things the Singapore government is trying. 
Would any of the panelists like to tell us something they wish we would try? Conversely, the only sort of sacred cow I heard mentioned was from Jessica, who mentioned how Lee Kuan Yew changed his mind about gambling. Would the others like to tell us, perhaps, identify one sacred cow that may need to be slaughtered? Thank you. Thank you, Simon. So, open to the panel. Um, Jessica, maybe we'll begin with you. You were name-checked on your reference to uh, Lee Kuan Yew changing his mind. Um, about what? What would I think that would have been the, yeah, the I, I, yeah. power that we have to hold sure. up and then protect? But maybe uh, just on that, what I wish we could do more. Um, I think in the in the spirit of, I think I have no doubt we will do well in the next ten years, perhaps even twenty. I think the next thirty and fifty years. Uh, what worries me um, beyond what was discussed, um, I think, it's really about the people aspect. Um, I don't know, I'm sure you guys run, some of us run organizations. Um, you know, uh, the, the new generation is, I, I'm, I'm sorry to, I, I hope this is not a live broadcast, it's a close to a session. Uh, you know, it's a bit of a strawberry, you know, generation. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, so, I mean, um, I'll give an example. My friend shall remain unnamed. Two, two friends that I'll talk about. Uh, you know, uh, one friend of mine runs a startup, a global startup, um, global company, uh, you know, and uh, in the midst of trying to get people back into the office, it's, I'm sure it's a hot topic, uh, you know, there are some who refused, who said that, oh, no, I work in compliance, etc. I don't really need to interact with other people. Coming to work means I actually have to pay, pay more to get the transportation, hard, hard, no, more expensive for food. Uh, and they refused to come. My friend, uh, being very brave, I you know I applaud him. He said, uh, "Well, since you don't need to come in, then frankly, the job doesn't need to be in Singapore. It can be in Vietnam or anywhere else. Uh, it can go the other way." Um, so, and then they, of course they came in Im immediately. Um, another friend of mine who runs a regional, very big company, which shall again remain unnamed. Uh, you know, in coming back, and we're talking about Asia, all across Asia, including LATAM. Everyone came back. The people who was most unhappy when polled was Singaporean, right? And uh, you know, I, I say this in the sense that I think I worry. I talked about just now. We can have ambition. We're great leaders, you know, but we are supported by people, right? People with good infrastructure, social education, the drive uh, to do things, um, you know, and and that's what sometimes I, I worry about uh, and wish that we could done a little bit more. Yeah. Thank you, Jessica. I'd like to turn to Larry Summers, if I may. Um, the two questions that are on the table, uh, what you might wish we could do more of, and I want to extrapolate to kind of get your insight, not just on Singapore, but there are many profound fundamental changes going on in the United States, in the US economy. I was lucky enough to get to hear you speak at a Peterson Institute event recently. Sacred cows, are being slaughtered. And perhaps you could share with us some of your insights about what's going on with the United States and how that bears on what we should be thinking about here in Singapore. Over to you, Larry. Yeah, I'm not sure that I have uh, great insight. I tried with what was probably more tact and I usually manage <laughs> to hint at the answer in my opening remarks when I 
referred to the importance of iconoclastic ideas and iconoclastic people and projects that were much better if they succeeded than they were costly if they uh, failed. Um, I, I suspect that um, there was a cohesion of uh, culture that has been central to Singapore's success for the last uh, 60 years. But when you're trying to lead from the front, I think a cultivation of the odd and uh, the difficult. Um, I, I wonder how a person with the mixture of traits that Elon Musk has or that Steve Jobs had would function and would or would not be permitted to flourish in uh, the Singaporean uh, system. The optimal amount of rule breaking in a creative society is substantially greater than zero. And I don't presume to know your country well enough to make uh, prescriptions. But as I heard the question about sacred cows, that was what um, occurred to me. Look, I think a great, great strength of uh, the United States is its ability to draw in everybody, to draw in the drunk, the drug addicted and alcoholic, to draw in the pathological personality, to provide second acts in life for some of the most uh, spectacular uh, failures. And I think those are things that we will need to preserve if the next century is to be an American century in the way that the last century was. Thank you. Thank you very much, Larry. Piyush. So I have, um, I guess, two comments um, in respect to Simon's question. The first is sort of similar to Larry, but with a little twist. I believe that as a country, we were very bold. I mean, we, we were very creative. Creation of Jurong, creation of the Asian dollar market, creation of an FX center, I'm creating, creation of a, in an import substitution world to think of an export-oriented system. These were all, I mean, really creative solutions at that time, but public sector driven and politically led. And therefore, um, it was not private sector. And so to Larry's point that the U.S. brings in everybody private sector, that wasn't us, and we had fantastic leaders who were creative. I think what's happened over time, my assessment, is we've become 
a little bit more uh, fearful of failure. Hmm. So, kiasu. And because we become more kiasu, our whole thing is, uh, in the old days, we didn't have a choice. You had to take big risks. Today, we have a lot to lose. Then you didn't have a lot to lose. And because we have a lot to lose, we're a lot more careful. And because the world is changing so fast, we cannot always afford to be careful. We have to take some bets. And that's one. The second, the second cow, I do think the one thing has changed dramatically in the last 50 years, and that is our access and availability of capital as a country. We did not have money in the 1960s. Today, we sit on a trillion dollars plus of reserves. I mean, nobody knows the number. You add all of it, it's about a trillion dollars of reserves. Uh, we need to recognize that capital and money is a source of strategic advantage. We have still not got our minds around the fact that we're a rich country, we have capital and resources. How do we put it to work to create competitive advantage? Whether it is addressing the underbelly of a society from, you know, Lee Kuan Yew famously said, I don't want passengers in my country. Well, maybe it's time to start looking at a little shift. But more importantly, how do we use it to scale up our presence in the new sectors, new industries, as well as leverage in the new countries? What is our challenge in ASEAN? Our neighbors think of us as a self-serving country, self-serving society. Little red dot looks after itself. Well, maybe we use our capital differently. Maybe we use and do what the Japanese and Koreans have done so well, which is invest for the long term and put stuff there to try and buy a greater degree of solidarity and goodwill. Because today, we approach, we're in a very different state. Now, that's a sacred cow in Singapore. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Ian. Yeah, thank you very much. Just to build on what the great panel this before me have said, this strength of what GIC, Tamasek, and reserves in the country does provide an opportunity. But one of the reasons for Singapore's success is it didn't indulge in industrial policy, a conscious decision not to do what others were doing in the 50s and 60s when it was born, which was import substitution industrialization. Now it can afford to do so. I hope it doesn't make the mistake that some other countries are making uh, in this respect, that it stays open and competitive uh, in this respect. But lots of money will be needed to create a place in the 21st century. Climate change, we've talked about building resilience. That's going to cost a lot of money. It's a public good. The incredible university system here is that is a public good. That's the reason, that's the basis, the R&D that happens around that, the knowledge economy for Singapore's future. But in the end, knowledge economies depend on people that can be anywhere in the world. Mm. You, don't, you, you need to look very carefully what's going on in San Francisco at the moment. People choosing to leave. I don't think that could ever happen here. And one of the advantages of being small is that people can't just go to their country homes to do hybrid work, uh, not, not in Singapore anyway. But the risk of people living, this has to be the place that young people want and choose to be. The young people that you want to attract from around the world, the young people that you want to keep here. That means catering for some of their interests. I wouldn't use the same word that Jessica used, but it is the case that the interests of young people are different, that the diversity interests, including gender diversity interests, are different. Uh, and that I think is sacred cow that is going to have to be addressed over time within Singapore. The final point I'll make is around leadership globally. 
Singapore has been careful to be quiet, a bit like China used to be. It's very interesting to watch some other countries, which in some respects are comparable, now coming out and playing a leadership role in solving global problems. And I think that Singapore has got to the point, which Larry said, at the front of the pack, mm. where that is now a responsibility, in its own interests, because we are part of the global commons. Thank you. Thank you, Ian, and, and all the panelists. The, uh, one of the key words that I took from this discussion is inclusiveness and openness, how Singapore needs to continue to embrace what happens from everywhere. Um, the extreme risk aversion that Piyoshi referred to, um, Henry Kissinger, I think, once wrote, because Singapore, the country, at one point did not feel it had a past, there was no guarantee it would have a future. Now we've got a past. Now there's a huge amount of resources that's available. Thinking about the future needs to come center stage, and some of that involves taking risks. Um, Larry, in his opening remark, referred to how at one point it was easier to play catch-up because other people had done it. We could learn from others. But now the sacred cow, the things that we must do more, have to do with breaking the mold. Um, Nolene, if I may, can I just turn to you? And again, please give your full name and then your organization. Uh, I used to be the Under Secretary General of the United Nations and recently just stepped down from my position as the UN Secretary General's envoy on Myanmar. I wanted to put on the agenda uh, the uh, issue of peace, security, and our ability to manage conflict. I uh, would like, uh, first of all, to say thank you to the panelists uh, for your very insightful and inspiring comments. But we know that the geopolitics that is affecting our world today uh, have actually triggered the threats of geoeconomic fragmentation. And this has appeared in some of the trade agenda, the finance agenda, the ICT agenda, and so on. Now, given the fact that geopolitics is shaping our world, in very threatening ways at this moment. And if I looked at even the investment in military uh, uh, sector, it is one of the highest in our history at $2.3 trillion. So the question is, all of you are practitioners, how would you manage this growing tension uh, in the work that you do and increasingly, whilst we are talking about the impact on the region, if you were advisors to uh, the two big uh, events that are coming up in our region, i.e. the ASEAN Summit in Indonesia and the G20 in India, what advice would you give to these organizations in managing these kinds of tensions? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nolene. Um, Nolene's question refers to geopolitics and how Singapore and others manage this new landscape that we are in. Uh, it chimes well with a question also from Lin Shuling of the Straits Times, who asks, 
how Singapore can remain prepared, diplomatic, and constructive when US-China economic competition is taking the shape that it currently assumes. For that, if I may, I'd like to begin with Larry and then Jessica and then come back again to Ian and Piyush. But Larry, how, does, how do you see the rest of the world managing this new fractured geopolitical, geoeconomic landscape? I am uh, torn between two views. Sometimes I think uh, that every moment seems uniquely worrisome and the past is always remembered as being much more serene than it was. The world could have gone to nuclear war over Berlin or when there were missiles in uh, Cuba. The idea of preemptive nuclear war was rooted about in uh, the 1950s. Leaders of China spoke about their capacity to absorb nine digits in casualties and uh, come back. So I think it is a mistake to always assume that the current moment is a moment of unique crisis and to fail to recognize that other moments of crisis have been surmounted. I think it's important to recognize that most events are bad and most trends are good. While we focus daily on events, where the world is, is much more substantially determined um, by uh, trends. That said, I think the upcoming G20 is a crucial junction. It is literally the case that the world is on fire. And history will judge those who attend that meeting on whether they responded with commitments and subsequent actions that allayed risks, brought down concerns, restored a focus on a common humanity, or whether instead there was another 30-page communique balloting coordination in support of cooperation and cooperation in support of coordination <laughs> and the other kinds of pros that any well-trained UN official can uh, produce effortlessly and that I imagine by now chat GPT can produce what might be called international speak, platitudes to which no one can object 
expressing worthy sentiments about uh, major problems. So I think I'm ultimately a bit more optimistic than the average observer of these things, but probably even more concerned than the average observer that any bit of optimism not translate itself into a fatalistic complacency that believes things will be okay without strong and difficult decisions being taken by key actors at key junctures. Thank you very much, Larry. Jessica. Um, I'll keep it short. Uh, I, I, I think it will continue to diverge. I think we'll be asked to choose. I don't envy a small state having to choose. Um, it matters and it, it doesn't matter. I think uh, we should sign up for the fact that I've already come to the realization we will no longer, I, I will have to bring two phones, all of us. Yeah. 6G, we're not, we'll be back in the times where we have what TDS, um, TDSMA, WN, uh, WDMA, CDMA. Um, I think UBS is not just telecoms, we're talking about handphones. Um, you know, I've been asked to choose our email software as well. Uh, so I think it will, it will happen. Um, and we have to be prepared and navigate through that. Um, yeah. Um, thank you, Jessica. Ian, I'm going to turn to you and then give Piyush the last word on this. I have nothing to add to the great comments that have been made. <laughs> Leave a bit of time for the next final question. <laughs> All right. Piyush. Well, again, I don't have too much more to add, except I'm struck by the fact that through the Cold War, Switzerland continued to stay neutral. And even though it was aligned to Western culture, Western norms, etc., technically they were neutral through the Cold War. I think even if you wind up with two sides, everybody needs an interlocutor. And I think there is the possibility of continuing to play that role in some shape, way or form. Okay, thank you. Now, I've been taking questions from this side of the room consistently from the same microphone. But I've been trying to see if anybody else on the other side of the room wants to come out. If not, I'm going to go with the last question here. So if you could uh, uh, you know, identify yourself, give your organization, ask your question. So we're coming to the end of time, and I want the panelists to speak fully to your concerns. Matthew Rafat, Lanonat Agency, the United States of America. Post-World War II, to be successful, a country had to not be corrupt, control population growth, and hitch its wagon to globalization, which in practice meant the United States. Obviously, moving forward, it's not going to be that simple. My, my question is, is there a similar formula that anyone here has in terms of balancing China and the United States moving forward? Okay, so this question very much related to the geopolitics one that we've just come away from. But I'm going to try and interpret your question in terms of more economic balance rather than uh, geo geopolitics, peace, conflict, and security. So I'm going to begin with Piyush and then come on around back to Larry. Piyush. Um, I would argue that in the last 20, 25 years, you would have been um, well served to hitch your wagon to China actually. Uh, if you look at global growth since uh, 2000, China has propelled the largest part of global growth. And in the last decade, 
post-2009, China was actually responsible for 80% plus of global growth. So it wasn't just hitching to the USA, but your underlying premise is correct. It was hitching to um, globalization. Uh, I, you know, without wanting to repeat myself, I do think that the big problems that we will face uh, as humanity in the coming decade are really uh, well established. The problems of planet, which is climate and biodiversity, uh, they are problems of artificial intelligence. I think it's going to pose profound. I have a, sometimes a fairly dystopian view on AI and the consequences it can have on all of us as people. I think there will continue to be problems of uh, people themselves. I think social imbalances and equity are going to be large. So when you say what is the winning formula for the future, that was my second point was, first was double down on globalization, but the second was embrace these new trends. In finding the answers of being a leader of the pack in solutioning for climate change, solutioning for AI, solutioning for trust, and solutioning for a digital infrastructure, I think that's uh, uh, an opportunity to find a new way forward. Thank you, Piyush. Ian? Yeah. My view is that um, the, the priority for all countries is to try and make the US and China get on. Uh, and the reason I say that is because I cannot think of a global problem, be it climate change, being stopping the next pandemic, uh, being restoring global growth, or any other that does not require those two big beasts to be in the room cooperating. And without that, we have greater and greater risk. And greater and greater risk spells greater and greater inequality. And greater and greater inequality spells greater and greater populism, protectionism, and nationalism, and a downward spiral, and therefore more crises because there's less cooperation. So I think that is the number one priority, whoever we are, wherever we are, in not taking sides with one or the other, uh, but trying to get them to cooperate and get both to recognize that their mutual coexistence is about the future of the coexistence of the world. The second thing I would stress is that we are rapidly moving. The world was never flat, or there was never a death of distance. The world became more spiky, and the distance between the rich and the poor got greater in many, within countries and between many countries. Of course, the trend, as Larry has emphasized, was positive for the world as a whole. The challenge we face now is that norm of globalization, of lifting all boats, is gone. Because artificial intelligence and climate change will make a lot of people, plus more and more risk, much worse off. The global pandemic pushed over 100 million people into dire poverty. That's below $2.15 a day. These risks exacerbate inequality. And by exacerbating inequality, they also create more populism. I don't believe that we would have had Brexit in Britain or Trump in the White House without the global financial crisis. The utter failure to manage the collapse of trust and with it, uh, the collapse of belief in the center, capacity to manage globalization. So these things matter. And so managing these complex dynamic systems embracing it as our future, but understanding that we have a vested interest in better risk management at the global level is vitally important. The final thing I'll say is that we need to worry about how artificial intelligence is going to widen disparity along with climate change. We have to move to a world of great, greater redistribution within Singapore, 
within all countries and within countries in the world. Uh, and that's why I worry terribly about rising protectionism and populism as an outcome of where we are at the moment. Thank you, Ian. Jessica. Uh, not much uh, to add. I think um, on the geopolitics, uh, we tend to talk about it a lot, um, you know, and then uh, I'm a person who I like to do stuff. Uh, I think even the two parties involved would not have a crystal ball of what it is like. Uh, so I like to focus on things that I think we can do and scenario plan around it. Uh, I think like what uh, Professor Golding talked about uh, makes, makes perfect sense, yeah. Thank you, Jessica. Larry, I'm gonna give you the last word. One of the key phrases in here was hitch your wagon. Should Singapore and other nations be thinking about hitching their economic wagon to different global powerhouses like your own, the United States or others? What's the thinking that we should be going through? I don't much like the phrase, uh, it's your wagon. And I would respectfully take issue with the suggestion that it would have been better to take, to, to in some sense, hitch your wagon to China than over the last 25 years. I think it tells you something that Xi Jinping's daughter attended university in the United States. I think for the most part, those who've been the beneficiaries of investment by U.S. global companies have found the externalities of that investment relatively large compared to being the beneficiaries of investment from other countries. I think those who've had the opportunity to engage in cross-border flows of people with respect to the United States have also derived very substantial benefits. And I think to this point, one looks at the flow of technologies that have enriched other countries. The United States has been a major engine of that progress. Think about the biomedical discoveries that are so importantly behind the improvements in health in human populations. So I would resist very strongly the idea that some strategy of hitching your wagon to China, not the United States, would have been or will be a availing strategy. I think the first thing that the United States and China should be able to reach a modus vivendi on, even if they can't reach a modus vivendi on much else, is not forcing other countries to choose between them. And I think we all make mistakes uh, in uh, that regard. I frequently repeat to my friends in the US government a conversation I had with an African friend some time ago who said, look, uh, we feel a deep and profound affinity for so many things about the United States. So many of us spent such wonderfully youthful times in the United States. But they offer us airports and you offer us lectures. And that's a choice 
that puts pretty strong pressures uh, on us. So I think we need to engage in and will engage in a contest or competition for influence, but I don't see merit in forcing anybody to choose. And my advice to others is to be very careful about making choices rather than trying to make one's way with respect for both parties. And I think that in many ways is as important as any other lesson that countries can learn from, leaders can learn from reading Lee Kuan Yew's writings and countries can learn from studying Singapore's experience. Perhaps I would close with this observation. In an ever more differentiated world in which labor is divided more and more, in which there is more and more specialization, strategy is increasingly going to be about building on strength rather than compensating for weakness. And so for individuals, for companies, for nations, attempting to discern what is one's distinctive and comparative strength and building as aggressively as possible on that is central to being valued and therefore to having leverage and experiencing success in almost any of the many, many scenarios for how the world can turn out. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Um, this has been a wonderful session with panelists sharing the ideas that they have had. My reckoning is that we could write chapters and chapters of things that we should be thinking about from what the four panelists have said. We've unfortunately reached the end of this time. I know that there are people still sending my microphones, hopefully, and there are people on the list that I'd hope to get to, but I'm not going to be able to. Most sincere apologies. Many thanks to the audience for your interest, enthusiasm, and your participation. But most of all, thanks to my panelists who've taken the time, traveled so far, allowed us to cut into their weekends and Sunday evenings. Please join me in thanking these four wonderful speakers.